let's hear the reading of God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the reading of God's word. You find out that four of your church members are having a huge quarrel about whether they think believer, uh, whether they think they are believers. Because one group believes we are called to pay tithes as an obligation, and the other group believes that we are not called to pay tithes. What would you say? What would you do? A husband is thinking of separating from his wife because she nags too much and constantly complains about headaches when he wants to have sex and he comes to meet you. What would you do? What would you say? A dearly beloved sister is thinking of leaving the Christian faith because after the loss of her Christian father and mother and brother, in the space of seven months, she is convinced that God doesn't care for her. What would you do? What would you say? People in your ethnic church are beginning to think of taking arms and retaliating against Muslims of the other tribe after the 12th attack on their small village and their property in just two years. And this is because especially the local government has done little to stop them because the head of the local government is also from the Muslims' tribe. What would you do? What would you say? Now, you may not have dealt with this in your, any of these in your ministry, but if you have not, trust me, you would. And so, the question I want to ask, if you think of those four questions, is, one, are we called and set apart for uniting quarreling brothers over doctrinal matters? Two, or are we called and set apart to marriage counseling? Three, are we called and set apart to grief counseling? Four, are we called or set apart to political activism? Because these will be the things that will solve all of those problems. And they came to meet you there in your church. <laughs> you see, Paul and all and a lot of the early Christian leaders, they faced modified problems like these ones I've just, I've just mentioned. And in the passage that we read, Paul says something very important. Verse 1. He says, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, so that's his vocation. But he was set apart for what? The gospel of God. As a Christian leader, you may be called to be a counselor. You may be called to be a pastor. You may be called to be a church planter. You may be called to be a youth worker, a parachurch ministry leader, an NGO, a Christian NGO leader. You may be called to many things. Those will be your vocations. But we are all set apart for the gospel. The gospel is what we are, if you like, consecrated to. This means that when you are faced with any of the situations that I mentioned, 
how you go about responding to them must be done from the perspective of the gospel, right? Well, nobody would argue with that. Now, this presumes something very, very, very big, a big assumption. A big assumption I think we're all just allowed to just go. Well, what's that assumption? That we all know what the gospel is. And I've learned in my small time in ministry, just speaking with a number of people, that that is the biggest assumption we all know. The word gospel is finded all about, but do we really agree on what it is? You see, this is where definitions matter. Now, don't get me wrong. Definitions are not everything. Definitions can be frustrating. Some people only spend their time in definitions. Definitions will not solve all the world's problems, right? Do you understand? But definitions do matter, especially as we want to argue in this conference, throughout this conference, that you should build, and I think Paul is arguing, you should build your life, center your ministry on one particular thing. If you don't know what that thing is, then how do you build on anything? You see, in church, we specialize at something. We specialize in using the same vocabulary and using different dictionaries. We use the same words, but we have different meanings when we are saying them. So my job today is to start off this conference, and it will be the same thing next uh, uh, tomorrow, is to do the, I, I got the, 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 the short end of the, of the straw. I got the bad part. I'm the one that is doing theology. But notice we said it to be the first talk in the morning. <laughs> you didn't put it after lunch. Imagine putting gospel theology after lunch. Nobody will be with me. So I want us to get to as precise an understanding of the gospel, a good definition of the gospel as much as possible. And we'll come through a number of scriptures uh, to do this. Now, Tomorrow, I'll talk a little bit more about how this affects our ministries and also look at these questions that I raised um, um, at the beginning. Um, but the other speakers will be building on theirs are mainly applications. So they'll be talking about gospel-centered preaching, character, leadership, church planting, advancement. But I just want to set it up through theology. So today, I want to talk uh, in the brief time that we have. It will be divided into two subheadings. <laughs> Self-headings. Um, one would be the gospel definition, and the second would be gospel alternatives. And we'll be looking mainly at Romans chapter 1. So let us start. Now, the gospel is good news, as we all know, right? I'm sure we all know. You've all said that. You've told your children what is gospel. The gospel is good news. Now, if it's good news, it's first and foremost, well, I don't want to say first and foremost, but it certainly is news. Right? It's news. At least it's news. That, that doesn't take us to, uh, to think too much. It's news. It's good news, but it's news. If it is news, then it is a statement. You know, newscasters, when they read news, they are reading statements. They are informing you about things. When you see a particular headline, it is a statement. And you can see that Paul is going to talk about that statement, but in verse 2, when he wants to talk about the statement, when he wants to start saying the gospel, he says something that you shouldn't miss. He says, this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Story, story. Ah, uh, uh, no, we Nigerians. Story, story. story. All right, for non-Nigerians <laughs> among us. When we were growing up and we wanted to, they wanted to read stories to us, we say story, story, and you say story. And then after that, you say, once upon a time, 
We, we Nigerians, we love stories. I wanted to give you a story today, but I looked at my time, you know, and I, I didn't want to be like some of those pastors that they say, you know, just, you, they give you one hour. And when it's five minutes to go, you say, I'll be wrapping up in five minutes. And you know what that five minutes is. Especially in Nigeria. That's another one hour. You know, we'll now be getting. So, but here's the thing I know about stories. Stories themselves, first of all, are not statements. Stories are the context through which a statement emerges. So, for instance, let us say I gave you this. Let's say you were an alien. Alien to the world. You, didn't, you never put on, the, you never searched the internet for anything. You lived in your own particular um, uh, village in Nigeria. And you moved to Lagos. And you see this thing they call cable TV. And you see the news. And somebody says, it's 2008. And they say, Barack Obama is the president of the United States. Uh, okay. And then you see people crying. You see old men, old black men crying. Be like, ah, these Americans, they are so emotional. Look at this dignified black man, old man, crying like a baby. Now, it will be, it's like, shouldn't they just um, elected another president? What's there? After eight years, you know, you move to, so what's the problem? Well, the problem with that is that that statement doesn't make so, as much sense as it should if you don't put the context and the story that comes before it. If you don't understand what happened with the slave trade and how black people were treated as three-fifths of, of human beings, and you don't understand the, after the Emancipation Proclamation, the segregation that then came after, and the civil rights movement that happened after, and the improbable chance that somebody with a dark skin can then be the president of that country you won't understand why that statement makes so much sense. Statements always need stories to give them their proper meaning. And a story is usually made up of what you can call a backstory and a forestory. Another word you can put it is backstory, you can call it history, and forestory, you can call it hopes. In the negative, it will be fears. What you are looking forward to, what you are not looking forward to, but your, your background. And many of us here, whether you started your churches or you're doing anything, we came here with a background. You have an ethnic background. You have a parental background. You have um, an economic background. You have an educational background. But also, there is a false story. You have certain hopes. You have hopes for your children. You have hopes for your ministry. You have hopes for your calling. And that's why... The statement, I will be at Renew 2018, makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't know what those backgrounds are, but that is what drives us. Stories drive us. And you see, the story, uh, the statement of the gospel, because remember, the gospel is news. The statement of the gospel only makes sense within the story that is set. And this is why Paul, before he defines the gospel, he says, oh, this gospel that is going to make sense, I need to explain to you that he has a backstory. That backstory has been promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And you know, at Paul's time, the New Testament is not written, so the Holy Scriptures he's talking about is what we call the Old Testament. If I ask you a question, if I say, look, 
what kind of genre, what style of writing is the Bible? You may say, well, let me put it this way. You see, the Bible is not primarily a law book, even though it contains laws. The Bible is not primarily a philosophical book, even though it contains philosophical musings. The Bible is not primarily a pragmatic book, even though it contains a lot of proverbs. The Bible is not primarily a secret code book, even though it... Co no, no, no. <laughs> it doesn't contain any secret codes. Let's, let's, let's throw that one there. Yeah, no, no. The Bible is a story book. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, Elisha's story, Elijah's story. Yeah, yeah, all those stories are there. It's not a collection, though, of just stories. The Bible, the historical part of the Bible, is telling you one grand story, a redemptive story, a redemptive story of a triune God and what he is trying to do in revealing himself to his apex creation. That's what the story is about. It is within this story that the apex of this story, the good news, the gospel then emerges. So there is the gospel itself, but you have the gospel story that lays the foundation. Do we understand that? If you take your Bible, for instance, and you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Prepare my first slide. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? But then you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, and then it says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, in the beginning, where God created heaven and the earth, eventually created two human beings, Adam and Eve, right? By the time you get to Revelation 21, it says there were multitudes and multitudes of people. And you say, oh, we know what happened. Especially we Nigerians and Africans. You know, we are very fertile, very fertile people. So you say, oh, if you read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God told them, he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. God said, go and make a load of babies. <laughs> so that wife that was complaining about headache, have Panadol extra by your bedside because we need to fulfill the mandate of God. And so all that happened, basically, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, is that people fulfilled that mandate. They kept having babies and babies and babies. So God said, go and do this, and we just have to write. And it is written, they had a lot of babies. And that's how we go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, isn't it? Well, if that happened, our Bible would be about two pages long, you know. <laughs> Last time I checked, for those of you who still carry Bibles, not carry phones, it's really thick. Why is it thick? It's thick because the storyline comes with certain twists. And there are about four acts that we can have in this storyline of the Bible. It goes, from, it goes from creation and ends in new creation, but it doesn't really go like that. So we start with creation. The next place we go to is the fall, which is coming after there. Thank you, Tomoa, for being speedy. The fall. And after that, and you know when we're watching movies, that's usually what happens. What, 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 um, action movies, you know action movies. 1980s action American movies. You guys sent us a lot of crap in the 80s. I have to say, Americans, right? So we had these great B action movies. I remember what we say, actor never, uh, you see, you watched it, all of you. 
So he sat off. The guy was in, in his, um, he, was being, he was working. He had a good family. Everything was fine. No problem in his life. That's creation. Everything starts very well. Home. After that, what happens? One day in this beautiful city, one terrible man comes. Uh, no, he found a girl. He had a girlfriend. He had a girlfriend during this period. Then one terrible man comes. He comes. He kills everybody in the village. He kills his mother. He kills his dad. But then he takes away his babe. Right? So that's tension. So what then happens after that? The guy now goes away. He somehow in the jungle, he has to run into the jungle. He now finds a Japanese sensei. A Japanese, you know, these Japanese men. And he said, my son, I have been looking for you all this time. He's like, who are you? Don't ask my name. <laughs> and then he sends him for training. And when he starts the training, the guy does not, he, you know, he's look, he, he can't do anything. He can't do anything. And then one day, the master talks to him. He has a dream. He has a vision. Eventually, he gets up. He starts hitting the trees, doing all of those things. He finishes. He's getting to the point where he's prepared. And at that point, the bad man comes and kills his master. You know, the master always dies. And then the guy now says, I'm going to have my revenge. And so one day, the guy starts training more and more. There are visions of his master, visions of his parents, and visions of his babe. And so he's now going to the headquarters of the master. He's now armed himself. He arms himself with... 5,000 grenades, 3,000 guns, because he's going to go and kill like 2,000 people. Now, they don't show us the truck that uh, he used to carry all those things, but he's just able to shoot. He kills all of the people, but then he kills all the 2,000 people in three minutes, by the way. Then he faces the master. The master, he has to fight the master for uh, the bad guy. He fights him for about 30 minutes, right? He eventually kills him, and then he comes with the baby again, and they live happily ever that is the basic storyline of every story. It starts with what we call home. There is a tension. There is a resolution. And then we go back to home again. See, he started with the babe, and he ends up with the babe, but now in a better condition. And your Bible is also structured in that way. In fact, all these movies and all these stories are, it's so woven into us that we are writing the Bible storyline. And so what you have is creation fall. Fall is the tension. There is an enemy that comes. There is a tempter that comes. He tries to spoil everything. And after that, there is a resolution which we call redemption. And then, after that, we have new creation. Better than it was at the first. And everything, our Bible moves in this storyline. So it tells us a story of people who rebelled against God. He's apex creation, and not only were they alienated from God when they rebelled, the result of this, I'm talking about that fall part, the result is that there was now a spiritual brokenness, a psychological brokenness, a social brokenness, and an environmental brokenness. A spiritual brokenness, those that used to walk with God in the cool of the day, all of a sudden now they're estranged from God. Now, this person, psychologically, is not fully fit in himself. He struggles all with, with all the tensions that he's facing outside and inside. But he's also now struggling with his wife. They now start arguing and blaming one another. And then God curses the ground for their sake because of how they sinned. They're broken spiritually. They're broken psychologically. They're broken socially, and they're broken environmentally. Why? Because of and the question is, what then does God do about it? 
Because if you follow the story, immediately after Genesis chapter 3, when this whole thing happened, Genesis 4 to 11 is part of the darkest part of the Bible. At one point, he said, God, you know, he regretted that he had made mankind. It was so bad, but not only did you have personal rebellion against him, the world was rebellious against him. He destroyed them. He left eight people. They remultiplied. And they did another thing. They went to Babel. And now, before, it was just individuals that were rebelling against God. Now, it was systemic rebellion against God. What's God going to do? The nations now are now rebelling against God because the nations are cursed. So what does God do in Genesis chapter 12? He calls a man and he says, I will make you a father of many. And through you, the nations that were cursed of the earth will now be blessed. And from the call of Abraham to the establishment of Israel, to the exodus, to the moving into the promised land, to the establishment of God's covenant with David, to the exile, to the return from exile, to the people being under the occupation of the Roman Empire, all of these things, God's plan of redemption is being worked out until we get to what we then call the gospel. Now, it's that gospel I now want to turn to. Um, if we had three talks, then I would have said a lot more about the gospel story. But let's now get to the gospel because this is the culmination of how God is going to solve the problem that his creation has brought about. So, I want to give you a definition because there is no one um, final definition for the gospel. So, I'm going to give you the best definition that exists is my definition, of course. No, but many, you find many definitions here and there, but this is one I've coined a, a few years ago and we use in this church, and I want to comment to you if it's something that you feel, and it's this definition I then want to defend um, as we go further. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. The gospel is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. And, you know, I said we have two, uh, two subheadings that we want to go through. So under this first one, I have six subheadings. And none of you should look at me like, why are you doing this? Because you've all done it in your churches. All right? So there are six subheadings in this first part. One, it's about Jesus. Two, he's incarnate. Three, he was crucified. Four, he resurrected. Five, he is Lord. Six, he is judge. It's about Jesus. He's incarnate. He was crucified. He resurrected. He is Lord. And he is judge. So first of all, it's about Jesus. So... Obina and, uh, uh, and um, Toki, please come up quickly. You know how um, we Nigerians, we like to, we, 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 with friends, you tell friends the stories of your life, all of those things that you guys grow together. So Obina and Tedo have known each other for a while. So Obina has told him about um, uh, 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 Kelechi, right? He's told him about Kelechi. Let's say your name is Bala today. Your name is Bala. So... So you then say, meet, uh, say, tell him, say, Bala, meet Kelechi. Bala, meet Kelechi. Now, we typically have those kinds of things. So what then happens is that Bala looks at Kelechi like, okay, I'm meant to know him. And he's not like, um, is it Kelechi that, um, 
Is it Kelechi that you are at uni with? Then Obina then said something, no, it's not that. It's Kelechi, my cousin. My cousin who we grew up together in Aba for a decade. Who got married in Onicha last Christmas. Who is into politics? We'll be like, oh, that Kelechi. How many of us have done something like that? You've been in that kind of scenario. All right, go sit down. Notice that all the descriptors, he needed to put in descriptors to show him who Kelechi was, right? And those descriptors are important, but that wasn't the main reason Kelechi, uh, um, Obina was introducing Kelechi to Bala, or Bala to Kelechi. The main point, even though he put all the descriptors, is what? He wanted Bala to meet Kelechi, isn't it? That was the main reason for the introduction. You see, Paul gives us also a rather long prescript here in this Romans chapter 1. And we'll get into all the descriptors that he puts in there. But notice that when speaking about this gospel of God that he talks about in verse 1, there is a big thing he's trying to do. What is he trying to do? He's trying to let us know that the gospel of God, verse 3, is regarding his son. His son, verse 4, Jesus Christ. In fact, if you remove all the descriptors, just remove all the descriptors that are there, you could be left with the gospel of God regarding his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate subject of the gospel. The gospel is news about something that has happened, not as I said, even though that's important, the gospel is not specifically talking about the backstory of the gospel. The gospel is not even talking about how you can apprehend the gospel. The thing we talk about faith and repentance. No. It's just talking that about someone. Something has happened. It is regarding God and his son, Jesus Christ. By this, we are talking about the main subject of the gospel. So if you say, like I have met a couple of people, when you're talking about the gospel, you only talk about what God, God is doing, God, God, God. Believe me, you don't have the gospel. Talking about God alone doesn't give you the gospel. If you speak about social reform, and believe me, I am a champion of social reform. I want to see so much social reform in this nation and this city. But social reform is not the gospel. Ethnic reconciliation, you know, our tribes. How many of us have married people that, uh, are that those that are married, that are married people that are not from our tribe? Hands up. Even me too, I didn't marry someone from my tribe. My wife's name is Tosin, but I don't consider her as a Yoruba girl. She didn't, she didn't grow up in Lagos. She grew up in Abuja. And you know Abuja Yoruba people, it's not really, they're not really Yoruba people. But the gospel helped me to break that barrier. But ethnic reconciliation itself is not the gospel. Even the resurrection of the saints on the last day is not the gospel. Why am I saying all of these? Why? Because none of these are specifically about Jesus Christ. The gospel is regarding God's son, Jesus Christ. That's the news. And you mustn't mistake that that's what Paul is trying to tell us. It's just that he's bad at writing sentences sometimes. Paul, you know, he just puts all the caveats and you have to put all the brackets. 
But he's basically saying, this gospel of God is about Jesus Christ. Never forget that. Actually, I said that our biggest problem, the nominalism that we have, the biggest problem I call the Pentecostal nominalism. Actually, I had one word before that. And it's monotheistic Pentecostal nominalism. Because you see, in our folk religions here in Nigeria, particularly in the West, we've always believed in one God, Olodumare, right? So it's very easy to talk about God, 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 God. And as you know, Nigeria is a very unique country in terms of the number of Christians and Muslims. There's no one that dominates. And Muslims also believe in one God. So when we're talking about God will do this, God bless Nigeria, God bless, which God are you talking about? Jesus Christ is what makes the distinction. So it's all about Jesus. Second, he is incarnate. Now, once you say it's all about Jesus, the next question is, who is he? Well, you really have to distinguish him by speaking about what Jesus has done. Don't forget. Bala said, uh, Obina said, Bala, meet what? Kelechi. The problem was that he didn't really know who Kelechi, which Kelechi is it. Do you understand me? So, Toki again. Toki, come. Let me ask you a question. Um, I want, do you know this guy? Uh, uh, sorry, your wife. I've met your wife, isn't it? She's a woman, right? <laughs> right? Your wife is a woman. Her name is Tommy Sin. Right? And she's from Anambra State. But she went to school in uh, the University of Portacos. Okay, but she went to school in Nigeria. And she can speak Mandarin. But um, she has three children for you. No, okay. Okay, she has three children, but two for you. Tommy Sin supports Arsenal. Tommy Sin recently had a baby. Tommy Sin has two cars. All right. So, thank you. I've described your wife, didn't I? No, I did. You said yes to many of my questions. Oh, so because you didn't say yes to some of my questions, but you said yes to a lot of my questions. I'm sure I'm talking about the same person. You see, that's the point. If you start to mess up on the identity of the work of Jesus Christ, we may be saying some things that are true about Jesus Christ. If you are saying some false things about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about the same Jesus Christ. And this brings about the perversion of our gospel. Paul is very clear. When he thinks about the gospel, he's thinking about certain things. It's not just Jesus came and spoke to me to open this particular church. How do you know it's Jesus? Because I know who Jesus is. No, you don't. You went around 2,000 years ago. If I showed you Jesus, you wouldn't be able to know who he is. We only know Jesus through the definitive work that he has done that has been given to us in the scriptures. Paul said it was prophesied beforehand where? In the Holy Scripture. And in this definition, he gives us certain descriptors. These are the big descriptors without which we are not talking about Jesus, the main Jesus. Because there are many Jesuses on display, aren't there? And so the only way we, what we, the question we are concerned about is, will the real Jesus please stand up? And he stands up through the pages of the scripture. So the first one is that he is incarnate. Look at verse, um, verse 3. In verse 3, he gives us a hint. He says, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. As to his earthly life, was a descendant of 
David. Now, this presupposes that Jesus had existed before. He's had, he had a pre-existence, but he came as a human being. He says his earthly life, and that he was a descendant of David. Now, that takes us back to the Old Testament. You see what he was talking about prophesied in the Holy Scriptures? It takes us back to the Old Testament where there was this prophecy about the gospel's Messiah. There is this one that will eventually come and fulfill all God has spoken about. But he has to be in King David's line. Now, but how do we know? Let me give you one example. We open up the book of Mark. It says that it says uh, it speaks about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist recognizes himself in the person of Isaiah chapter 40. The one who cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of who? Now that Lord is not just Lord, it is Yahweh, Jehovah. So he's preparing the way of Jehovah to come. There is one that will precede Jehovah. Jehovah is the one that's going to come and solve all the problems. Jehovah is coming. And then eventually John the Baptist says, that is the one I'm telling you. That is the person I'm telling you that I'm coming, that I'm coming before. You're like, wait, no, hold on. Now it's Jehovah that is coming. Exactly. Jehovah comes as a human being. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. And the word dwelt, the word became a man, a human being, and dwelt what? Among us. We've beheld his glory. The glory of the only one and, the one and only begotten. Jesus, God, became a human being. Now, let me tell you, this is the greatest mystery of, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest mystery of the Bible. How does eternity come into the temporal? How does the creator become like one of those who is created? How does he enter into his creation? Your mind can never comprehend that. What your mind should comprehend is this is the length that God has taken to come and deliver human beings like you and I. He is incarnate. The God that we serve became a human being. He did not become less than a God. He is fully God, but he's also fully human. Well, somebody put it this way. He's truly God, but he's truly a man as well. Because the solution or the mediator, the ultimate mediator between God and man is God that is a man. He is incarnate. Second, he was crucified. Notice at the end of verse 4, he speaks about him dying, resurrection from the dead. Now, this Jesus, during his, his life, he was morally impeccable and demonstrated both unprecedented power and wisdom. Morally impeccable, unprecedented power and wisdom. Not only did he bring new revelation, he also taught as one having what? Authority. But the funny thing, ironically, is that his life was really about his death. Christmas was heading towards Good Friday. Because Paul in verse 4 says he died. And now, how, how did he die? Ah, we thank God for good life. He had a very good health insurance policy. And that extended his life, even though the, the age of people that died in those times was maybe 45, he extended his life to 90, and he, had, he, he died in good, ripe old age. He slept, you know, Nigerians, our, the best way to die, when you die gloriously, he slept very peaceful. Maybe that's the way he died. Or was he sick? Is that how he died? No, how did he die? 
Well, in Romans chapter 3, it tells us how he dies. In verse 25, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Sacrifice of atonement, or maybe some translations say propitiation. Now, we are seeing shedding of blood there. My brothers, you know what that is? He was killed. Jesus was killed in his prime. He did not die of natural causes. In fact, in other places, in the writings of Jesus, in the Gospels, he says that he was shamefully crucified on a cross. Imagine that. The creator of the world comes into this world. He does nothing but good. He demonstrates power. He shows us wisdom. He teaches with authority. And he's crucified as a criminal. And, all right, that's all good. That's all history. But Paul then comes and says, that's good news. What? How? Why? Let me give you one reason. One of the things that I, I thank God, I, I, by God's grace, I would die a Christian. Nothing would shift my faith in Christ. But if there was anything that ever made me think that there wasn't a God, could ever, but it doesn't, is the suffering of innocent children. Suffering of innocent children. Because why does that hit us? If somebody, if somebody was hit by a car now, outside, and uh, let's say you see oh, the man was like 44. You know, we all feel bad. You cross the road, you shouldn't have done it, but that was such a waste. You feel bad, but eventually you move on. And some of us hear about some of the killings in the, mid in the middle part of the of, of, uh, middle belt. I saw some story, uh, some pictures. You see a child's head that has been smashed, maybe a child of three years old. Which one moves you more? Why? You know why? I can tell you one of the reasons why we physically are revolved by it is because when we look at children, we say, this person has not lived enough to do any evil, any meaningful evil that they understand. That 44-year-old man that crossed, we don't know whether he was a wife beater. We don't know whether he used to drink. We don't know whether he was owing people too much money. But you say if he's 44, there is no human being that has lived to 44 that has not done some bad evil, right? So you say, in some sense, he is not totally innocent. But with the child, the child is what? Innocent. And so we say, man, this is a crime. But here's the point. If the child has not lived enough to do any meaningful good, uh, uh, evil, the child has not lived enough to do any meaningful good. Right? The reason why the death of the Son of God was scandalous is that he lived enough not to do evil, but the Bible says he only ever did good. And that's why the gospel should help you even in the times of suffering. Because you can say, I don't fully understand, but God himself came as a man and he also suffered. So when you say, God, why me? You should say, why him? And the good news gives us that empathy to be able to see that God empathizes with us. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says the, the gospel that I declare to you, he said that Christ died according to the scriptures. He says it's good news. At that part, he says that I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. Paul tells us here that if you don't have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in your gospel message, it's not the gospel. Four. He resurrected. He's not on the cross anymore. He's not in his tomb. His tomb is empty. You see, Jesus rose from the dead in what we call the resurrection. Now, 
Here's another thing we need to be careful with. The resurrection, Jesus in the resurrection, came, he came back to life. But it's more than just what we understand. He, he didn't come back to life like Lazarus. You know Lazarus? You know Lazarus, John 11, that Jesus raised to You know he's dead. He's not, he's not alive. He came back to life. Then he died again. He died two times. Poor guy. You know, he's experienced two times. Only him. But Jesus, when he died, he died not to die again. Jesus in death conquered death through death. In Romans 6, 9, it says that death has no mastery over him. He cannot die again because he's been raised from the dead. In fact, you see, when Jesus bodily rose from the dead, he began a new redemptive historical age. I say that again. A new redemptive historical age. By that I mean, do you want to see what the eternal future will look like? Look at Jesus after his resurrection. The future that we're anticipating, look at Jesus after the resurrection. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45, he says, look, there was a first creation, a first Adam, but there is a final what? Adam. There's another human race. And that human race is in the likeness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, Jesus became immortal. He cannot die again. This is why sometimes it's a bit confusing when you read something like Colossians 1 verse 18. Colossians 1 18 says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn. Firstborn? No, Adam was the firstborn now. Jesus came 2,000 years later. No, but it says Christ was, Christ was the firstborn from among the dead. Listen to me. There are two kinds of creation. The first creation, God brought clay, put a man there, and put the breath of his life in him, and he became what? A living being. The second creation, God saw his Messiah dead, and his breath, the Spirit of God, raised him. For if the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he will what? quicken or raise your mortal bodies in the same way he did Jesus. Is that it is different in this regard. He rises from the dead and this new creation will never die again because he rises into incorruptibility and life. The first Adam was a living soul, but the second Adam is what? A life-giving spirit. There is a new man and the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that the new creation we've entered into it. Why? Because Jesus has got in there. For in Adam all die. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. The resurrection opens a whole new understanding in how we think about history. If the resurrection did not happen, Paul says to people, we have all meant to be what? Pitied. Your faith means nothing. He says, look, enjoy this life now. Party. Have a ball. Because after this, there's nothing to do again. But if Jesus rose from the dead, and he said, in fact, he rose from the dead. That's why we can suffer in Ephesus with brute beasts. That's why we can suffer all day long. Why? Because we have a hope that others don't have. So Jesus rose from the dead. I said in Colossians 1.18, he says, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. That leads me to the fifth one. He is Lord. Supremacy. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, go back to the text again in, in, in chapter 1. Because there's something funny there. Like a tautology. You know what a tautology is? It's a kind of statement that is repeated. When you read 1 uh, verses 2 to 4, you will see that it says the gospel of God regarding his son. We see that in 2. Regarding his son, Abby. But if you now go to verse 4, 
It says who, that son, who was appointed the son of God. Yeah? The gospel regarding his son, who was appointed the son of God. I thought he was already the son. How is he now appointed the son? Wasn't he the son from the beginning? How is he now made the son? When you think about the son of God, when we say Jesus is the son of God, and this is where we, sometimes we Christians, we are our worst enemies when it comes to Muslims. But many times in our understanding of the Son of God, we think of God giving birth to somebody, somehow. But you see, we have to be, we have to allow our understanding of Jesus' sonship to be as expansive as the Bible. There are two ways the Bible presents Jesus' sonship. One, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, God the Son, before any human being was made. From all of eternity, God has always existed in three persons. And one of them is the son, father and son. The pre-existent God is God the son. He's always existed. Now, but that God the son, as Paul is showing us here, he had an earthly life. In that earthly life, he put on flesh. He was Israel's Messiah. And in that regard, according to David's line, he was the son of God, doing good. However, before his resurrection, he was the Messiah that was going to the cross. After his resurrection, he was the Messiah that was going to the throne. Now, this is important. Listen to me. When, David, when Israel was leaving um, Egypt, when they went to leave Egypt, God said to Pharaoh on the last plague, what did he say? He said, let my people go. If you don't let my people go, I will kill all your firstborn sons. Why? Because Israel is my firstborn son. God adopted Israel over all the nations of the world as his own chosen possession, and so therefore he called Israel his son. So that when God was making a covenant with David, David the king that represents this sonship nation, God says, when you go to the throne, you will become my son. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. You are my son today, I have what? Begotten you. That is a psalm written about when a king, a king in the Davidic line, goes into the throne. It's not that God is giving birth to a son. It's that he's ascending to the throne of uh, the king of God's people. God's people, the son nation, and therefore the mediator, the kingly mediator is like God's own son as well. Do you understand? And so every Davidic king that sat on the throne of God's people was God's son. Do you understand? And so now the house, the broken house of David has been fallen for 400 years. And Jesus then comes, and he dies. But when he dies, you remember the promise was that I will give him the throne and the king, uh, the keys of the kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David. And so when he resurrected from dead, remember they wanted to make Jesus Christ king many times. They said the time hasn't come. Because the son was not going to be appointed the son after the order of Adam. He was going to be appointed the son after the order of Christ in the resurrection. And so the throne is not a throne somewhere in the Middle East there. It is the throne over all the world. So when Jesus resurrected, he ascended and he went to the throne in heaven. And we know that happened because he poured out the spirit. See how Paul puts it in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, Paul is speaking to some Jews. He says in verse 32, we tell you the good news, the gospel. What God promised our ancestors he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus up. In other words, the promises of God that are yea and amen, they are yea and amen in who? Christ. 
The promises are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says this, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become what? Your father. He said that second psalm is finally fulfilled because now there is a king not that kings will be dying, dying, dying. You know, if you read the book of Kings, this one, he died 40 years, then his son, then took over. Now, at this point, they said, now, finally, a king has ascended to the throne. A priest, ordered the, after the order of Melchizedek, who has an indissoluble life, he's ascended to the throne. And now, he's appointed God's son forever. So, there is God, the son, eternal. But when he put on humanity... And he came and he bore sins on the cross. When he resurrected, he ascended to the throne. And he is now the incarnate son of God also forever. Is this clear? This is why Paul sometimes will summarize the gospel as this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is what? Is Lord. And finally, he is judge. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26 to 27, uh, verse 25 to 26, we are told that Jesus must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated, he calls what? Death. Ah. So Jesus is reigning now. He's Lord. But he hasn't put all his enemies, the final battle has been done, one, but he hasn't put all his enemies under his feet. How do we know? Because people are dying. So he's reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. What is the last enemy to be defeated? Death. So in other words, the fulfillment of the gospel has not finally taken place. It will happen when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Paul calls this the second coming of Jesus Christ, or we know it as the parousia. Now if you turn to Romans chapter 2, Paul shows us something there. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verse 5. I'll read to 8. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your own repentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. What's Paul talking about there? He's talking about final judgment, right? Right? The day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give them eternal life. So Paul is talking about the end. Are we agreed? But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, he continues, continues all of those. He goes from 9 to verse 15. It's still the same argument. And here is how he concludes. When he's talking about the judgment of God, and Jesus Christ is going to do that, here is how he concludes. This will take place, verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ. We've already established that, and here is the punchline. As my gospel declares. You see, the judgment of Jesus Christ is part of the gospel. When Jesus comes to put everything to right, that is good news. When Jesus comes to judge people eternally who have rejected God and feel that they are their own gods, believe me, in Revelation it says the angels of heaven were Singing to him, it is good. I don't want to sound like somebody that is just a hell and firestone uh, uh, preacher, but that is true. And I'll say a little bit more about that. But that is true. 
So what is the gospel? You have to have these elements that distinguish Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that the incarnate, crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and the impending judge of the world. Now, sometimes you can take elements of that. Paul says, or in some places, just take Jesus is Lord. In another place, he said, I want to know nothing else among you except Christ and him crucified. He doesn't say anything about resurrection. In many places in the book of Acts, he will say, oh, they preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, you have the different elements there. But if your Jesus is not distinguished by these elements, then you have a different Jesus. If you are thinking about a gospel-centered renewal revival, it's not that we have the, the luxury to all define the thing for what we want it to be. We have to go back to the scriptures. That is the good news. Now, the good news, as you know, if today they come and they say, ha, there has been a 50% increase in GDP, in Nigeria's GDP, you know, and they say, oh, so also that uh, um, we are now number one on uh, corruption index, transparency index, that is, that is we are the best, we are the most incorruptible country in the world. I thought somebody would say amen. <laughs> so our GDP has increased by 50%. And now, the Nigeria is so clean, it's not corrupt. You know that's news, first of all. But that news means something for us. There are benefits to it. So I'll talk about the benefits tomorrow. My time is up, but can I crave your indulgence for eight more minutes to just finish up with certain things? I want to offer you a particular definition. It's a bit more expansive. Now, it takes into account the result of these things, that of what Jesus has done. It's much more expansive. And I'll just make a few comments about some alternatives that we should be weary of. Now, can I have the second one? So, it is what God has lovingly, graciously, and decisively accomplished in and through the person of his incarnate son, Jesus Christ. All right? That's the gospel. But what does it then do? It reconciles rebellious sinners to himself. It gives them new life in the Holy Spirit, defeats the cosmic powers of evil, establishes a new community of love, that's the church, with the promise of fully restoring the created order. This was accomplished because Christ has died and is resurrected. This was accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection, but now he is reigning, so it's being administered through his heavenly reign and will finally be consummated when in his world return. You think of Christ's first coming, you think of his reign, and then you think of his return. But you see all those different benefits there. And it's with this definition, I want to make some caution. Some, I want to offer some caution. Sometimes the problem with our gospel is that it doesn't focus, it doesn't have the, an eternal, it doesn't have an eternal worldview. You see that part at the end where it says, he's coming. In other words, you're not going to get everything now. Not everything, the way the world is, is not, I believe through the gospel we can change things, but there are certain things we don't have now. We have certain Gospels on parade now that tells us, look, if you are, if you are in Christ who has died and risen, you just need to appropriate your faith to get anything you want. That is a problem. Because that awaits when Christ returns. Sometimes also, here's the problem. When we define our Gospel, we focus too much, or when we are applying it, we focus too much on him defeating the cosmic powers of evil. What do I mean by that? Uh, Pastor, my mother-in-law is disturbing me. She's a witch. 
is a gift. It's possible the mother-in-law is a gift. So what does the gospel now bring? You say, well, we're going to fight fire for fire. So the, 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 the theater of the gospel is one or fight. Now you say, ah, we can't carry guns. We can't. But we will have spiritual what? Fire. So our gospel turns into Jesus has defeated the cosmic powers of evil. So we will hold prayer meetings that fire, prayer fire meetings or, you know, fire, fall down and die, all of those kinds of things. That is a problem. Here's another one in that regard. What if you meet people, somebody who has, she's been molested in her life or her husband has treated her very badly or somebody who has been swindled and this person now is having a problem with self-esteem. We have a lot of people that have self-esteem issues. So what we then end up doing is that, you know the biggest problem you have in this life? The biggest problem you have in this life is the oppression that's come to you. So we become encouragers in chief. And so our gospel becomes too therapeutic. But we never allow those people to see that at the heart of the gospel is that we are rebellious sinners. Even the victims themselves are rebels. And so what would then happen is that you will give a truncated gospel that is always all about just encouraging people. That gospel never calls people to repent. So I want to end with this. I'll give you five different types of gospels, five different gospels that I think are on parade. And I want you to reflect in your ministries. There's no one nobody is being condemning here, but reflect in your ministries as to whether you are engaging in some of these kinds of things. Because again, if we are going to see revival and renewal in our city, it's not just let's talk about it and let's just pray about it. We pray and we use the means that God has given to us which is the right and the true gospel. First one is what we call the victorious gospel. I'm not saying that this is how you define it. I'm saying this is a good summary of what it means. What's the victorious gospel? Through Jesus Christ, God has won the victory of all victories over the devil, the victory of all victories over the devil, resulting in the deliverance. If you want, don't worry, if you want any of these things, we can send you the, um, the slides, all right? So, through Jesus Christ, God has won the victory of all victories over the devil, resulting in the deliverance from slavery for all those who believe in Jesus. Therefore, by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are able to now walk in victory over various forms of oppressions in your life. You see, here's the problem with all the examples I'll give you. There are elements of truth in them. The problem is that is especially what they leave out and what they add. Doesn't Romans say that we are more than conquerors in, 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 in him that has loved us? The problem here, though, is that you cast the gospel as only one way we keep finding victory and victory and victory. And Paul says, may I know him not just in the power of his resurrection, but what? In the fellowship of his suffering. If you don't have sufferings, you are not walking in the line of the cross. And so if you cast a victorious gospel alone, you are only dwelling in the, in, the, in the resurrection. And once you present a half gospel, you have no gospel. And so this is what happens. Somebody is dealing with sin. Somebody is dealing with lying. And what do they want? They want a man of God to come and cast out the spirit of lying from them. Because you have this kind of victorious thing. All I need is victory over this. They don't use the means of Bible study, of praying, of keeping themselves accountable. They don't want to grow spiritually. Second, you have the, which one is next? The holiness gospel or example. 
The death of Jesus Christ symbolizes God's supreme holiness and his displeasure towards sin. All those who believe in Christ are therefore called to live lives of utter holiness, mortifying the lust of the flesh, shunning the lust of the eyes, and suppressing the pride of life with the hope of making heaven in view. These people preach on Isaiah chapter 6 half, time, half of the whole year. Holy, 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 holy. That's all. Don't get me wrong. God is holy. We understand. God is holy. The problem with this is it has, it has no love there. For God so loved what? The world. Now, his holiness applied to the fact that he punished his son in our place. But if you just put this here, there's also no security. There's almost no difference between a Muslim view of salvation and this one. Because it says, with the hope of making heaven in view, who knows? You may be saved, but you may not be saved. Always just keep in line, because Jesus can come at any time. And woe betide you, if you are lying when Jesus comes, man, hell don't be for you. And so what this eventually turns into is a gospel of legalism. And people that embrace this kind of gospel, you know what they are most of the time? They are either depressed because they feel they can never do enough to earn God's favor, or they think they've done enough to earn God's favor, and they always look down upon others. Look at her skirt. She's not even reaching her ankle. She may not make heaven. <laughs> She's carrying weave on. She may be. Yeah. I know all those women that have weave on. They'll go to hell. Do you understand? That's a holiness example. Third one. Therapeutic example. Since Jesus died for my sins and rose again, I now have a personal relationship with God as a child in his family. It means I no longer have to look down on myself. I'm able to achieve anything I set my heart to do, and I can have daily conversations with my good, good father. Part of the problem with this one is that it is, first of all, too individualistic. People that embrace this, most of the time, they have no accountability in church. They don't need anybody. It's me and my Jesus. We work together. Jesus spoke to me this morning and this afternoon. He's got my number. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Jesus and I, we speak all the time. And the biggest problem they think they have is low self-esteem. And so what's Jesus there to do? Jesus is there to encourage. Now, don't forget, again, in the Bible, as I said, all of these things, they have elements of truth there. If there are people that are bearing under uh, difficulties of life, we are called as brothers and sisters to lift them up. But the problem here is that this gospel has no wrath at all. Nothing about sin. God didn't come to deliver you from sin. God came to deliver you from a low self-esteem. There are many people with great self-esteem that are not saved. And so is your are your messages strictly only just about encouraging people? If you have that, then you don't have the gospel. Number four. We are doing five. The prosperous example. The death and resurrection of Christ was God's instrument in history to reverse both the guilt and the accompanying curse brought about by Adam's fall. When we believe in Christ, we appropriate the blessings of the abundant life, which results in restored fellowship with God, okay, consistent triumphs in spiritual warfare, eh, growth in holiness and gifting, good, physical healing in our bodies, and significant increase in our finances. Without being too technical, this is what somebody can call an overrealized eschatology. What does that mean? You remember the definition I gave? I said that God will, Jesus is going to consummate everything when he returns. 
The problem with this gospel is that it brings some of the things that are not going to happen now, it brings it into this age. If you say that everything can be given to you, you just have to have enough faith. Often people that preach that message, I want to say, can I take you to South Sudan? You know South Sudan? In wartime. Let's take it there and say, guys, as they're running away from guns, all you have to do is have enough faith. You have money in your bank account. Don't you understand? They can't even open a bank account. Talk less of filling the bank account with heaven's economy. It promises, by promising too much, he ends up promising too little. Is it that God, is, God doesn't care about our bodies? I totally believe that Jesus heals today by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also believe that Paul, that healed people, could not heal Trophimus as well. And it's nothing to do with Trophimus' faith. The power of the resurrection shows that God heals people today. The fellowship of his suffering shows that God doesn't heal people today. God has two responses to suffering. If you read 2 Corinthians 1, one is that he delivers us from suffering. He delivered us from such a great trial, and he will yet deliver us. But in that same 2 Corinthians 1, he says, Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our what? suffering. If he doesn't deliver us, he gives us comfort. Because we share in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. The problem with this is that it only has the power of the resurrection, and it says you can have it now. And that gospel is a false gospel. The gospel that puts your mind so much only on money, 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 or your health and all of those things, it promises too much and ends up promising too little. God will eventually give us bodies that will never, ever grow sick. He promises that. That is why the resurrection happens. But that happens when Christ returns. The final one is what we can call the kingdom example. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God was bringing to pass his kingdom agenda. Because there's the, kingdom of, there's the gospel of grace, but there's also the gospel of the kingdom. You know, people like this will say, Paul preached the gospel of grace, but Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. So he was bringing in the kingdom agenda. You get saved. It's good to get saved. You started out eternity, but now there is a kingdom agenda. Now, what's the kingdom agenda? He was bringing his kingdom agenda into the world, which will be supervised by the risen king, Jesus, but it will be directed by the Holy Spirit, who is here on earth, and administered through believers with a kingdom mindset. It's not open to every believer. You have to have a kingdom mindset. As believers, God has called us to be kings in the seven mountains of culture. What are the seven mountains of culture? Art and entertainment, business, education, family, government, media, and religion. By this, we will take over the kingdoms of darkness and renew all sectors with the excellence and righteousness of Christ. Let's be careful. Listen to me. God wants us to be salt and light. The kingdom of Christ is a salvific kingdom. Christ was first seen to be king on the cross before he went to the throne. So when, when James, uh, John say, uh, writes about Jesus Christ saying, you must be born again. That being born again is tied to the kingdom. You can't see or enter the kingdom without being born again. To be saved is to enter into God's salvific kingdom. It's not that you have a gospel of grace here and a gospel of kingdom here. The gospel of grace is the gospel of the kingdom. It just depends now on which writer and what they are focusing on. Now, we have to be careful because this, as we look at the issues that happen in our society, 
This, the last two examples are the most prevalent examples we have in Lagos, certainly, today. This is why when we think about politics, we have to be very careful. Is it when we send Christians into the places of power, then everything will be turned around? I love our vice president. He's a Christian. Has everything been turned around? Because the kingdom of God is not going to come this way. It comes like a mustard seed. By sowing the word of God. The kingdom of God advances through the gospel. Not by political office. This doesn't mean that people who have been saved by the gospel cannot go into political office. But we don't think that the kingdom is going to come in that way. Neither is it going to come into ent through entertainment and culture. We hope that people that have the kingdom and are in the kingdom can go there and make the place better. We talk about cultural renewal. But it's not that we're going to set up a kingdom there. Once we start to do these things, we pervert the gospel. Most of the people that embrace this gospel, you know what happens? They focus, they don't focus on eternity. There is no hell in the preaching. There is nothing to be saved from because really the only hell to be saved from is irrelevance. Once we can become relevant, once our Instagram followers can make two million, the kingdom has come. I spent a lot of time, I've entered into my answer, but this is why I said, if we're looking for renewal, social cultural renewal in our city, we need to start with spiritual renewal. But the Bible has always shown us that the spiritual renewal will come from the advancement of the gospel. But we need to know what gospel we are talking about before we can then start to apply it and call people into it. We need to be precise. The gospel is about the incarnate, crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, who is now the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. All the benefits that come with that, we will talk about tomorrow. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spent. We thank you um, for engaging our minds, but we also hope engaging our hearts. We pray, Lord, that with any of the questions that may come or the, the considerations, speak to us, Holy Spirit. We want to keep hearing from you and do great things for us um, as we continue to engage in this conference. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.